We have come to praise His great name. His great name. How about that today? Uh, we're thankful to God to be in this place today uh, as the Lord has brought us together in, uh, for Bethel Church Gary for our, uh, our first, uh, our first um, worship service. And uh, if you could give me just a little bit more in the monitors, just a little bit more, that'd be great. Thank you. All right. That's good. Thank you so much. Um, you know, in- interesting things happen when you have a first anything. And uh, so this morning, I get up and uh, I look in the mirror, and I've got like this big giant zit on my chin, so <laughs> like, okay. So I did what any person would do in their right mind. I just put some Windex on it. That's what you... <laughs> See, that's right. Uh, my big fat Greek wedding people will get that, right? That's right. You put a little Windex on, it's cool. <laughs> All right. All right. Good, good, good. Let's, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we uh, prepare to go into the word on today. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your many blessings that you have so kindly bestowed upon us. And we're thankful for what you have done in this place Uh, And, Father, this place is dedicated to your great name, uh, dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray now that as we set aside this time for the preaching of the word, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in thy sight, uh, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And we shall be careful to give your name praise. We pray that any who are here today that have not received Jesus as Savior, that uh, today would be a good day for that to happen. So we are grateful for that opportunity to share uh, your son Jesus with the world and uh, with this community in particular. Uh, God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, Just for a few moments, if you have your Bibles, turn them on or open them, whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, we don't open Bibles like we used to anymore. We turn them on. Just get the, get the electronic, uh, electronic thing going there. Um, I um, want to invite your attention to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 4 from the English Standard Version of the Scripture. Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Scripture says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And So I want to share with you today from this thought, A series that we're going to be beginning today called the Nehemiah Perspective. And today we'll talk about navigating an unexpected problem. Navigating an unexpected problem. Now this series of messages will explore selected passages in the book of Nehemiah. Our purpose is to navigate 
the perspective of the man, Nehemiah, how God uniquely used him to rebuild a people as well as a wall. And what this means for believers who want to engage their communities for the sake of the gospel. Also, we will drill down into the world of Nehemiah and perhaps see that his worldview shapes him as a person and how our worldview determines the level of effectiveness we may have in being instruments of God for the purpose, the express purpose of serving others and modeling Christ in the world. Now, before we engage ourselves in the text, let us look uh, at the view of life for Nehemiah during his time. What was life like for Nehemiah? Now, Persia, ancient Persia, was the political and economic power in the ancient Near East, and Babylon was the capital city. And this would be located in modern-day Iran. The Persian armies invaded Jerusalem around 586 B.C. And while doing so, they destroyed the temple, burned down the gates, destroyed the walls, especially the walls designed for their protection. And they also carried into captivity the brightest, wealthiest, and the most talented citizens of Jerusalem. They left behind the poor and the less able. They left those people behind, those people who were not able to generate income, who were not able to, to, uh, to work and, and be useful in the eyes of the Persian Empire. They left them behind to fend for themselves. They left them behind as a conquered people. Now, comparatively speaking this morning, brothers and sisters, we could look at America today and, 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 and it seems like this same type of destruction is occurring. As we look at our cities, as we look at, at people being left in a condition that is, is detrimental to their emotional, physical, and intellectual well-being, and also their spiritual lives. lives. I was reading an article today, and... Uh, and said that Gary, Indiana was a city besides Detroit that was the most, uh, the, the most, uh, the city that was the most worst, the worst off city in, in America besides Detroit. Gary, Indiana has lost 57% of its population since the 1970s. When we look at where we are today, we see a very similar circumstance that is occurring right before our very eyes. And so the narrative of Nehemiah begins in the mid-5th century B.C. with Nehemiah serving as cupbearer for King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. And the dating of Nehemiah's narrative indicates to us that he was likely born in captivity. He never knew the freedom that his people had enjoyed. 
The name Nehemiah means Jehovah comforts, which is appropriate since it is this same Jehovah that allowed captivity and hardship to become the realities of his people due to their sin. What happened to the Jews when they began to look at and look toward other gods? God responded by allowing captivity to come their way. There is a penalty to pay for idolatry. First commandment says thou shall have no other God. Before me. And here were the people had been carried off into captivity because of their own sin. The position of the cupbearer was one of extreme importance. Now, I want to because Nehemiah was, was not just a butler for the king. You know, we think cupbearer and we think here's the guy that goes and gets the drink and 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 brings it to the king and and all of that. And and here's the guy that that uh, uh, has to taste the wine before the king tastes it. And, and sure, that was his duty to taste the wine before the king tasted it. But the other thing about his duty, the cupbearer in these days was more like a prime minister. And so you understand that here, one of God's people in exile had risen to the ranks of a prime minister in the Persian court. This is a very important element in in understanding Nehemiah. He was a leader. Nehemiah also reveals to us that, uh, that he had a family, a father and a brother who traveled back to the homeland of Jerusalem. And this indicates that that Nehemiah's family may have been pulled into captivity, but they never forgot their roots. And this is important as to how even today we look at cities. People leave cities for the suburbs and all too often we forget where we've come from. There's something happening on social media right now that's kind of exploding before our eyes. And it's the I'm so You know, I, I had to, I tried to, I tried to fight that off, but I'm from East Chicago. So I had to say, I'm so East Chicago that I remember Mr. Bell's saucer ice cream and buying chocolate cones from him when I was a little kid. And so we look at, we remember where we come from. And so Nehemiah's family never forgot their roots. Now, as we look at the beginning of this narrative of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, uh, the narrative opens talking about an encounter that he had with his brother. And, he, and he's a person who's in a strange land. Nehemiah the man, a person in a strange land, like many of us might do when a relative comes to town from our homeland. Nehemiah wants the 411 on what's happening back at home. He wants to know what's going on at the crib. Can I say that? Huh? He wants to know how mom and them doing. He want to know if Ray Ray is still in college. (laughs) He want to know, did dad spend his 401k on a new Corvette because of midlife crisis? (laughs) You know, stuff like that. (laughs) Nehemiah wants to know what was going on in Jerusalem. And even though he had never seen the city, he knew it was a place of a homeland for his people. And so... He wanted to know what was happening. It is during this conversation that Nehemiah hears some news that rocks his world. Some unexpected news. Now, he knew they were in captivity, but it's almost like he didn't know how bad things really were. 
This unexpected news, his brother tells him that things are in rough shape back home. Now think for a minute of how you might respond to this sort of news. And even though Nehemiah knew that his people, the remnant of the Jewish nation, were in captivity, it had to shock him to hear just how bad things were. There may be some people that you know. If you live here in Gary or Northwest Indiana, they may call you and say, how are things back home? And you have to give them a report of what's going on. And sadly to say, we'd have to give a report right here in this neighborhood, up and down Fifth Avenue, that the last two or three weeks have been marred by horrible violence. Can you imagine what they would say? When they heard such a report. The reality in Nehemiah's world leads us to drill down deeper regarding how he responds to what he sees as a major problem for his people. People, by the way, that he has never even met. There are some elements for us to consider. Three things. Number one, let's consider the problem revealed. In verse three, so we look at verse three. Scripture says, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah's brother described the conditions in Jerusalem to him, holding nothing back. He gave him the truth of the matter. He was honest with Nehemiah about what was happening. He didn't try to sugarcoat it at all. Now, here's a nugget for you. When assessing, when assessing the difficulties in your own life or even the difficulties in lives of other people, let me help you understand this. It's important to be honest. You can't help people and you can't help yourself if you're not honest. If you pretend to think that somehow you're in some type of fantasy world, that things are not really the way they are. And don't we try to fool ourselves sometimes? And when we when we look to help people, we have to look from an honest perspective. They say this. The truth sometimes hurts. But I think about it like this. I'd rather go with what Jesus said. We say the truth hurts. Jesus said the truth makes you free. Oh, you ought to come on. You ought to give God some praise right there. (laughs) The truth makes you free, whether you want to be free or not. The truth kicks open the jail cell door of your mind and says, walk out into this new, this new freedom that you have for the first time, maybe in your whole life. The truth makes you free. And so he gave Nehemiah the truth. Notice that the report given by Hanani about the homeland started with the condition of the people. He says in response to Nehemiah's question, the remnant who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. This may have been the most troubling for Nehemiah because he was a man of great compassion. And we'll talk about that a little later. His initial inquiry, though, reveals this because he asked about people. He knew that the walls were there, but he asked about the people. 
Let us note here two elements of the problem facing the people. First and foremost, they were in trouble. They were exposed to further attack because they were defenseless. Now, what does this mean? They likely lived an unsettled life, discouraged by their plight, depressed by their condition, and in despair regarding their future. There exists a strong correlation between this remnant of Jews, of survivors, and the people who every day live in cities where a state of violence, poverty, and fear are constants that create hunger, hurt, hurt, and hopelessness. That's the reality of our communities and our world. And these people, many of us, see, here's the thing. Many of us go about our lives oblivious to choices made by people who are living as survivors of the ravaging effects of sin in our world and even in their own lives. And we find little compassion for people because they didn't do things the way we did. You know, maybe you were blessed to go through high school and never have to worry about becoming the breadwinner in your home. Maybe you were blessed to have gone to college on a scholarship or had the financial wherewithal to pay and don't have to worry about how am I going to get the money to pay for an education. And sometimes those of us who are so blessed, we, we just kind of live in this state of obliviousness and we don't see those individuals. So they were in trouble. They were in trouble. The second thing that we notice about what he's saying, they lived in shame. Now imagine the indignity of surviving an escape from captivity and returning to see your homeland in ruins, disrepair and disregard. For the Jews, being a conquered people was a matter of shame. They walked through their communities with their head down. Not even wanting to look at someone. They walked through their communities discouraged, depressed, disappointed. Every day reminded about the shame of their condition. And so the next time we try to stand in judgment of somebody that's in that situation today. Let's be reminded, saints. Let's be reminded that nobody gets up in the morning in their right mind and says, I want to live in poverty. Hmm? Nobody in their right mind gets up and says that this is what I want for my life. Nobody gets up and says, I want to go outside my house and know that my house is the only house on the whole block that's occupied. Nobody wants that. So be careful how we judge others whose circumstances are different than ours. They lived in shame. They lived in shame. And imagine their shame was magnified by the fact that they were God's chosen people. They were servants of the Most High who were now in captivity due to their own sin. They were crying out to God, please help us. We don't want to live like this. We can compare this to where we are today. We have, perhaps as the article said, more problems per capita right here in Gary, Indiana than in in any city other than Detroit 
in America. And at the same time, we have more churches per capita. I was reticent about another church. Only because we seem to, 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 to be real easy. It seems real easy for us to start churches. But what makes this ministry different is that we're not just starting a church. We are actually going to be servants of the Most High God here at this place. We have to love people. And many of them won't look like us. Many of them won't have the financial wherewithal that we have. But I'll tell you this. Some of them will be so rich in spirit. They'll be so rich in spirit that it's going to expose the poverty in our own hearts. And we are going to be blessed as we bless. Come on, give God some praise for that. Watch this now. Watch this now. So, so, so we have this problem that was unexpected. He didn't expect to hear this. But look at what happens. Let's go back to, to verse 2 because I, wanna, I want you to understand how Nehemiah's priority came about. So we have now a, a problem that's unexpected, but we have a priority that's determined. And, and, and we see this in the asking of his question. Look at verse 2. He says, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. To clearly understand the man, Nehemiah, and what set him apart as a leader is to note the tender compassion in his conversation with his brother and those who have come from Judea. He demonstrates deep concern for three important elements. Deep concern. Number one, he demonstrates concern for the Jews who had escaped. Apparently, there were some people who had been carried off into captivity. But what happened, some kind of way, they were able to escape the clutches of, of Babylon and get back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah said, they were here a little while ago, but now they're gone. I need to know how they're doing. He had concern for them. Then he, then he had concern for those who had survived the exile, those who had been left behind because they were they were on the fringes of society that nobody really loved them. Nobody cared about them. Perhaps those were the disabled people. Perhaps those were the people who were who are emotionally and mentally challenged. Perhaps they were people that just just somebody looked over. And all of us know somebody that gets looked over, don't we? And if you don't know somebody, maybe you are that person that gets looked over, looked over. But I came to tell you today that that God never looks over people. God looks at people. And so we we, we see that he had he had concern for those who had survived the exile. And then he and then finally he has concern for the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't ask questions about about what was happening in the in the farmlands. And it wasn't because farmlands weren't important. But there was a city called Jerusalem, a city of God, the city of David, where the temple had been built, the city that was dedicated to the praise and worship of God. And Nehemiah wanted to know what's happening in Jerusalem. 
What's going on in that city, in God's city? Now, this concern that he has indicates to us that as a servant leader, Nehemiah placed people as a priority. He didn't first inquire about the city. That wasn't his first question. He didn't ask about the wall. He wanted to know about people. And this tells us that Nehemiah was people-centered in his priority because he was God-centered in his life. Understand that. In order to change our world and change our city, we must have the perspective that people matter. It's the same Maybe I should say that again. We must have the perspective that people matter. Look at somebody and tell them people matter. People matter. Come on, say it like you mean it. People matter. We got to get that. We got to get that. You know, we live in a world. We live in a world where social media and everything, it makes us disconnected. You're sitting next to somebody and you're texting each other. (laughs) We don't call people on the phone. We Facebook them. We put tweets up. We want to get somebody told off. We tweet it. <laughs> we put posts on Facebook, all those things. And, and to get our, 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 our thoughts out there, we don't talk to people anymore. Some of us text message our mama. Now, now I have to give my mother credit. She's here. But I give my mother credit because my mother resisted text messaging for a long time. She had like the last flip phone on earth. It's just like, I'm just not going, not going to do it. I'm like, Ma, your grandkids, they don't, they don't talk on the phone. They don't talk to me. They're my kids. Get texts. And so, and so we, 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 we got to understand that people matter and nehemiah was god was was a people matter to him because he had the god perspective of life every life matters we often focus on the what's of life rather than the who's of life what matters that people matter no matter what they look like no matter where they're from no matter who their mama or daddy is no matter how much money they have no matter how tall or short no matter the complexion of their skin people matter to us because they matter to God I had to learn early on that people are different because I, w- I really wasn't one of those real cool kids you know I tried to be cool but my first day at Bishop Knoll I had some pants that were you know too high (laughs) socks were showing and (laughs) I'm trying to think they might have been like checkered pants I don't know but I I was nerd central man (laughs) but I learned early on that God makes all kinds of people in his image we are all image bearers from the coolest cat to the nerdiest one. We are all image bearers of God. And so this God made us. Who are we to judge what pe- who people are. And what they look like. And what they do. Amen. So Nehemiah had this perspective. That people were important. And I came to tell you today. That we can't do a work in Gary. Or any other city. If we don't understand. That people are important. We can't do a 
work in Crown Point. We can't do a work in Merrillville. We can't do a work in Cherville. We can't do a work in St. John. We can't do a work in Dyer. We can't do a work across the border. We can't do a work in Cedar Lake if we don't understand that people matter. God is tired of churches that pretend like people matter. I don't want to pastor a church that pretends like people matter. I want to be in a church where people really matter. So here, here was Nehemiah's perspective. This was, this was, this was his, 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 his priority. His priority. So now let's, let's look at this last thing. His perspective. His perspective revealed. Watch this now. We look, he says, I've got this problem. I have a priority that people matter. And here's my perspective on this. He says, as soon as I heard, in verse 4, these words, I sat down and wept. And mourn for days. And I continue fasting and praying before the God of heaven. As soon as I heard these words. As soon as I heard them. As we read this verse, we see the true perspective of Nehemiah. We see his worldview framed in a few short but important words. We see his perspective about life laid bare. For all to see. Now, I want to say a few words about perspective. Because all of us have a perspective. You can call it worldview. You can call it perspective. But perspective is essentially the way we see things. How many times have you been talking to somebody and they say, well, I don't see it that way? Huh? Right? they're really saying is I don't have the same perspective on, on, on this as you do. Well, I don't see it that way. Husband and wives go through this all the time, don't we? <laughs> that's, why, that's why I don't spend all your money on the wedding. Spend some of it on becoming one. <laughs> that's right. The ceremony is not the big thing. It's the becoming one that's the tough thing. That's right. So, so we have this, this, all of us have this, have a perspective. We all have a world view of how we see things. And perspective shapes us. Our experiences determine our perspective. There are some people in here today that say, I will never get married. Amen. Don't, 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 don't let anybody see you. Throw your hand up real fast like this. Because there have been some experiences that maybe have happened in your life. Maybe you've been, been, been through a tough marriage and you're hurting and have pain still from that circumstance. And, and, and our, our experiences begin to shape our outlook. So what do we do? We make these declarations about what we'll never do. Because our perspective has been shaped by our experiences. And I want you to see right here in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah had a perspective and a, 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 a perspective to deal with a problem. We're not blind. We see 
the problems that are in our world as a Christian community. And yet, for too long, our perspective have been, let's just keep everything in-house. Let's, let's be people that just gather on Sunday and let God deal with our problems. And we come in here, and I'm not telling you that you ought not lay all your problems on the altar. I'm not telling you that you ought not cast your cares on him because the scripture says he cares for you. But that's not all what the Christian life is about. It's not about just dealing with our situations, our circumstances. But it's about becoming that instrument of God that can be used in the world to share the gospel of Jesus with everybody. For far too many Christians today are overly concerned with what's going on in our own lives. And you can almost hear it in our talk. You can, you can, you can tell. You know, we come into the house of the Lord anything but joyful. Huh? And someone's had a nerve to come in here like we're doing God a favor. He ought to be glad I showed up today. I could have stayed home. I could have watched T.D. Jakes on TV. I didn't have to. And that's our perspective. That's our attitude about life. You know, then some of us come in to the house of the Lord and all we can think about is our burdens. And I'm reminded of the psalmist that said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And the psalmist says, enter into his courts with thanksgiving and into his presence with praise. We come in here. Good morning. How are you? If I'm an unbeliever and I saw Christians acting like that, I'm like, man, they have more fun at the club. <laughs> I know y'all don't know nothing about that, but... <laughs> But that's, that's, that's the reality of where we are in life. We become consumed and Western civilization has dumped this on us. The American civilization has dumped this ideal that it's all about us. But I came to tell you, it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. Somebody ought to give God some praise there. Watch this now. Watch this now. So Nehemiah has this perspective. He's a man moved by the suffering of others. He says, as soon as I heard, and you can almost feel the intensity of his words, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down. One of the tenets of mourning in the Jewish culture is that when you hear bad news, you sit down. You sit down as a sign that you are entering into that moment of mourning. And he says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. What do we do when we read the newspaper? Oh, you know, 100 people shot over the weekend in Chicago. Oh, that's too bad. A thousand jobs have gone somewhere else. Oh, that's too bad. Unemployment for young black males in Gary is, is almost 60 or 70%. Oh, that's too bad. And we go about our day. 
Where is the morning for the effects of sin in our culture? Where's the weeping for people who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? We're too concerned with ourselves. He says, I sat down and I wept and I mourned. And it wasn't for an hour. It wasn't for a day, but it was for days. In other words, I hunkered down and I wept as long as I had to. To truly reflect the genuine nature of the gospel. We as believers should model our Lord as did Nehemiah. God himself saw the world suffering from the horrible effects of sin. And he sent a remedy in himself. Jesus the Christ. The Bible says in Matthew 9 and 36 that Jesus said when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Our Lord himself had compassion. We can't go around calling ourselves Christians. We don't want to be Christ-like. We go, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. But are you anything like Christ? Do you have compassion on people? Are you willing to, 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 to weep and to mourn over the condition of somebody other than yourself? Or somebody other than the person in your family? Yeah, we'll weep over that. You know, you're my blood, you know. I gotta. But when was the last time you mourned over the condition of a stranger? Somebody you passed on the road. When the last time you stopped and said, I have to pray right now. We see people in the community who have who have obviously uh, is suffering from some mental illness. And what do we do? We keep driving and say, that man crazy. No crazy man out there in the middle of the road. And the same guy is out there every day. You see him in the morning on the way to work and you see him in the, mor- in the evening on the way home. That's what we do. Jesus said he had compassion when he looked at the people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Our God is a God of compassion. And so should his people be people of compassion. But I want to say this about compassion. And make no mistake about it. True compassion. Let me tell you what it's not. True compassion is not just agreeing with someone's situation. True compassion is not just not just saying that I accept you. True compassion is honest. True compassion is not just holding my hand and telling me it's going to be all right. That's an element of compassion. That's an important element of compassion. But true compassion, true compassion is honest. True love has its basis and foundation on truth. It is not compassion to help someone with the attitude that you're doing them a favor. It's not compassion to help someone just to the point where you feel better. So you can go and tell somebody, look what I did. True compassion and true love is in the trenches. True love doesn't seek to be puffed up and seen, but true love is behind the scenes. True love answers the phone in the midnight hour. 
Nehemiah was a man whose entire perspective of life radiated from a passionate and intense faith in God. And as we go through this series of messages, the writer, we, we need to understand that element that Nehemiah had a passion and intense faith in God and that the writer really wants us to see who Nehemiah is with God. The writer records Nehemiah saying, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah stayed before the Lord regarding the people and his burden for them. His fasting and praying indicates a perspective that says, I can do nothing without God. I can do nothing of consequence without God. I can't change one life. I can't save one soul. That is up to God. I can't even share the gospel without God. I need the Holy Spirit permeating every cell in my body as I get ready to tell somebody what thus said the Lord. So Nehemiah said, I got a burden for these people. And he sat down and he fasted and he prayed. And let me just tell you this. If you're if you're fasting without prayer. You're just on a diet. <laughs> oh, I'm fasting. Tell me, I'm fasting. Oh, no, I can't have it. I'm fasting. But are you praying? Jesus says that a certain kind of faith and power comes by prayer and fasting. And so, and so if you're just fasting because you want people to see what a sacrifice you make, you're missing the, the, the context of what this whole thing is about. You've got to say, I, I, I can't just fast. I need to pray. Nehemiah fasted and prayed. You know, we don't do too much fasting anymore and praying as a church. You know, I grew up in the church when we had prayer meeting night. Some of y'all remember prayer meeting night, don't you? And prayer meeting night, you'd have the deacons of the church be get, be get there and they would sing a song and, and they would begin to pray. And they would get on their knees and they'd be talking to God. And, and, and we as kids, we would always know that deacon would say almost the same prayer every time. He would start at something like this. He said, this evening, Heavenly Father, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's once more and again a few of your handmade children are gathered together in the house of the Lord. And we would hear that prayer. And, and here I am, 52 years old, and I still remember that deacon's prayer. And, and so there's value in understanding that the church needs to come together in prayer. Sometimes we don't need uh, uh, all of the glitz and the glamour. We just need to simply get on our knees right here and pray. We just need to pray. We need to be a praying church. And when you're a praying church, you're a listening church. You're listening for the leading of the Lord. You're listening for God's direction. You're submitting yourself to saying, Lord, we don't have an answer for why these children are killing themselves in the street. 
We don't have an answer in ourselves, but help us to use the answer you gave us, and that's the gospel. So if we, we cannot hope for God to use us if we're more concerned about ourselves and our needs than we are about the gospel of Jesus. People who want to make a difference, they fast and pray before the God of heaven. They know they serve a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace, the bright and morning star, the lily of the valley. The rose of Sharon, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, Jehovah Nasi, the Lord our banner, our bread in a hungry land, our song when we need a song. They know that we serve a true and a mighty God. You think God doesn't know what's going on in Gary? He knows. He knows. And you know what? He's just waiting for us to get out of his way and let him do his thing through us. He's waiting for a church that will come down here and say, I'm going to take off all pretense. And I'm just going to be used by you, Lord. I'm going to talk to the young, to the old, to the rich, to the poor, to the hopeless, to the helpless. And we're going to tell them all about Jesus. That's all God's been waiting for. He doesn't need us complaining about how bad things are. He said, I gave you the answer. And the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah had the right perspective. For an unexpected problem, he knew that no problem was bigger than the God he served. And we will see as we go through this, this, this series on Nehemiah, we will see him be able to do things by the grace and the mercy of God that would seem even miraculous with all the modern technology we have today. The work that he did was God-inspired and God-driven. And that's where we want to be. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your blessings. We thank you for this word. And we pray, oh God, that there are hearts today that will respond to this gospel. The fact that you sent Jesus to this world. That you came so that we might have life. That you gave him, that his blood was shed for us on the cross, and that he arose with victory. God, we're careful to give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.